3: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the climax of the Labour leadership contest and what lies ahead for the party, plus what George Osborne might do next. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Robert Trimsley, the managing editor of FT.com, Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, and John McTurner, who's a former Labour adviser to Tony Blair turned pundit. Thank you all for joining. So on to this week's big story, which is the Labour Leadership Contest, and it's finally over for this time. The result is due to be announced at Saturday lunchtime, and unless the polls and bookmakers are drastically wrong, it has happened before, then Jeremy Corbyn will romp home to victory once again. His challenger, Owen Smith, ran a lacklustre campaign that did not do much to dent Mr Corbyn's support. But the conversation has already moved on to what happens next and how Mr Corbyn is going to capitalise on his victory. So Jim Picard, at this stage we're recording just before the result comes out. It doesn't look like there's any doubt that Jeremy isn't going to win and win big. How significant is that for the party on the cusp of its conference this
1: year? It's an absolute historic moment. We thought last year was a historic moment, but there was still this lingering sense that it could be a temporary blip or an aberration and that the normality would resume normality being the kind of new labor sense of a a party that was socially democratic in the center ground, friendly to business, up to a point and all the rest of it. And this marks uh, a breaking point from all that decisive shift to the left i mean we used to talk about ed miliband leaning to the left but ed miliband was always still triangulating somewhat in terms of financial responsibility and not spending too much and not annoying business too much we have a totally different world now where labor party is becoming a giant party of protest they insist regularly that they do want to be in government Uh, We should have to take that at face value. But they're looking very much like Bob Dylan going electric. It's a seismic change.
3: Well, when you look at the Labour Party, John McTurney, it's now got over 600,000 members, which have come from all sorts of places, including other political parties, the Communists, the Green Party, you name it, they're all pouring into Labour right now. How do you see this victory? Because you've obviously said many times before, Corbyn is unelectable, he's never going to be Prime Minister. Do you still believe that? And do you believe it's as seismic as Jim says? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, to take up the Bob Dylan analogy, this is like the people who hated Bob Dylan going electric, taking Dylan back and forcing him to play acoustic guitar. These people are taking us back to the future, back to the Labour Party of the 30s or of the 50s or of the 80s when Labour was utterly unelectable. You know, Ed Miliband, for all his strengths, was smashed at the last election. And he was smashed because the public didn't trust him on the economy, on welfare or immigration. Corbyn is doubling, maybe even trebling down on those weaknesses and adding to it, defence. Weak on defence, weak on security, uh, soft on Putin, high on taxes, the whole thing. There is no way that a Corbyn programme could be uh, a platform to be elected.
1: Weak on welfare, weak on immigration, weak on public spending. Yeah. Strong on idealism.
0: Yeah, and with a track record that's not been exploited at all by the Tory party yet, of support for the IRA to start with, which will just not go down well in the northeastern, northwestern working class communities. There's no doubt in my mind uh, there are about 30 seats which UKIP will be targeting. They've learnt from the Brexit referendum campaign. They know where there are pockets of support for them, and they'll be targeting Labour viciously and the patriotism, security, defence areas. areas so, of no, weaknesses.
1: I, I think this is the point that I always make at this point, whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of his views on quality, environment, or the kind of idealistic side of things, which, you know, let's be fair, most of the people who've signed up to Labour in the last year or so are probably in their early 20s. They see Jeremy Corbyn as an untainted sort of Gandalf figure, taking Labour back into being a proper left-wing party, and they see the good side of things. And they get very frustrated and disappointed by people like me and John pointing out the flaws in all of this. Um, But the major flaw is that if they get to a general election and the Conservative Party is able to deploy uh, its considerable research department to going back through the cuttings and the videos of all the things that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have said and done over the last 30 years, and whether it's John McDonnell encouraging workers to spit in managers tea or... John McDonnell saying that he's a Marxist, or whether it's Corbyn standing firm with the IRA, or saying it was a tragedy that Osama bin Laden died, or saying we don't really need a military, or we should be able to hypothecate our taxes towards the military, or he doesn't like the monarchy, or we should have unlimited immigration, unlimited welfare. The Tories are holding back, and they're going to launch an attack dossier which will strike fear into Middle England in a way that will make the Ed Miliband attack dossier. Oh, he's a bit close to the SNP and he's a bit lefty. It's going to make that look like a picnic.
3: If we had a Corbynista sitting with us now, John, they would say that your analysis of the situation is wrong, that Ed Miliband lost the election because he pandered to the right, and they often cite his controls on immigration mug as an example of how they tried to take a Tory-light approach, the budget lock, which was a haphazard last-minute policy to say that Labour would always try and pass a surplus when it was in government. Um, They would say that a whole new approach is needed. What's your response to this idea that Ed didn't lose because he was a bit close to the S MP as Jim said or the fact that he was seen as a bit wet and not a persuasive personality but he was actually too right wing and if you take the poor Mason's view of the world the neoliberal order has broken up and we need something new
0: it's just gibberish nothing more than that The Labour Party was not neoliberal. The Labour Party, under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, gave workers' rights and increased employment year on year on year until the global financial crisis. It's illiterate and it's gibberish. And the problem that the Corbynistas cannot account for is why, if there's an appetite for a new kind of politics... Corbyn is 71 points behind Theresa May in the ratings and Theresa May is not some left-wing crusader. Theresa May is very clearly a very traditional conservative figure. That appears to be very popular in the country. and. To win elections, you have to persuade people who voted Tory or voted UKIP to vote Labour. Nine million people voted Labour at the last election. We need 13 million if we want to actually win an election. Those four million are not hiding out somewhere waiting for a socialist messiah. They're actually real people in Middle England who want their prosperity to be guaranteed. They want their kids' prosperity to be guaranteed. They want to see a future for the country and they see that future being delivered by capitalism and by business. And they see Corbyn for what he is, anti-capitalist, anti-business, anti-growth, anti-wealth and anti-British.
1: Looking up on Seb's point, I think it is fair to say that when you examine the bones of what went wrong in Labour's general election campaign last year, there were a lot of conflicting messages. There was a lot of caution just at the wrong moment. And one reason why people are so enamoured with Corbyn, or a very small subset of the population is completely in love with him, is that there is this clarity. And if you were to say, what is Corbyn's message? People do know what it is. And it got to the point where Balls and Miliband are they going to spend more? Are they going to spend less? Where exactly do they stand on certain things? It was a bit messy. And and just the fact they didn't really have an election slogan until the dying days of the campaign, whereas the Tories were hammering home these simplistic messages about long-term economic plan and and all the rest of it. They knew what their message was, and they were very, very ruthless. And that's one thing that Labour needs to learn, whoever's in in 2020. So, you know, we can obviously
3: take from this and from other things that John is not a big fan of Jeremy Corbyn and the like of him in the party have backed Owen Smith. Now, I think Owen Smith's campaign, you know, it was pretty disappointing in the sense his message was, I'm like Jeremy, but I'm a bit more competent. He didn't really have anything new to say. For moderates, is it all over now?
0: No, look, Owen Smith had to run the campaign which Ed Miliband's rule changes forced on him, which is you have to answer the wrong question. The question Owen Smith was trying to answer was, Who can the membership like the most? What we should be doing in a leadership election is finding out who the country likes the most and respects the most. Within those constraints, it's very hard to work out a different way for Owen Smith uh, to pitch himself. You really have to distinguish yourself on Europe, which he did, and to say, and distinguish yourself on electability, which he did, just turns out the Labour Party's full of people who don't really care about winning elections.
3: So is that it, Jim? Is it over? Corbyn's won twice now. And how are they ever going to get away from, if not his personality, his way of thinking?
1: I think just going back to the own Smith campaign as well, I think people have been a little bit hard on him. There have been a couple of duff notes, for example, when he seemed to hint at We ought to be talking to Isis and his ridiculous assertion that he had leadership qualities because he'd achieved a girlfriend at a boy's school and some slightly bizarre moments. But I thought he actually came across as quite a good communicator. He impressed a lot of unpolitical people that I know. Um, But the problem was, it's like if you're in a pub with six people who like you, it's very easy to be interesting and entertaining. If you've got six people who don't like you, it's almost impossible. And right from the outset, the wind was not with him because... There is such affection for Jeremy Corbyn, particularly among the new Labour members, and they are a lot more vocal. I mean, let's not forget that a couple of hundred thousand people still backing Owen Smith or his vision of the world where things are more moderate. These people are still there. But I suspect they're hoping that a lot of the new members disappear or lose interest, because that seems to be one of their only hopes for now. And and your question in terms of what do MPs do next? We're going to see quite a few of them saying... Yeah, when we signed that motion of no confidence in the leader, we actually meant that he's all right and we should have given him another chance and I would like to be shadow minister for paperclips and I'm going to take my seat back on the front benches and please, Momentum, can you stop sending me emails telling me that I'm a horrendous Blairite and should burn in hell? So there'll be a little bit of a capitulation from quite a few MPs Others will try and sit it out by joining select committees. You see Chuck Ramuna, Yvette Cooper, Caroline Flint competing to be the new chair of the Home Affairs Committee. Labour moderates. A lot of Labour moderates sitting it out. I think some will be trying to shore up the support back in their constituencies. Some will be thinking about leaving politics because what we now know... Unless 300 or 400,000 people suddenly lose interest in paying their fees to the Labour Party every year, Corbyn could go on for years and years and his successor looks like it's going to be someone in the same vein. So what is there for you if you are a kind of John Woodcock, Blairite MP?
0: The answer is straightforward. One is you have to articulate a separate policy agenda and I think it's about time for people not just to become select committee chairs but to actually have an agenda on the issues of housing or the issues of growth or business and actually developing a future for the UK post-Brexit. I think the second thing you do is you look to where the strengths of moderation and mainstream politics still remain in the party and that's in the trade unions. Next year, Len McCluskey has to be re-elected as the leader of Unite. If you lost that election, that be a big blow for Jeremy Corbyn. The unions are still a big part of the party. And if you get the unions and the MPs together, that's a very different proposition from bossing the MPs around. And you've got a situation where Jeremy Corbyn has obviously got a lock on the leadership under the current rules. If the rules were changed and the unions control 50% of the rules at party conference, and they control a chunk of the votes on the National Executive Committee, then things could change. So battle have to take place on many, many fronts. But the one lesson for MPs, they have shown incredible unity in this period, a unity I thought was beyond them as members of the PLP actually, but collectively that 170, 180 people stuck together and the resignation stuck together and the vote of no confidence stuck together and nominating Rowan Smith stuck together and supporting only one candidate. They've now got to hang together or they will hang separately. There is no way through this by pandering to momentum in their constituencies.
3: But all that's going to get a lot harder, Jim, because Corbyn, I'm sure, will seize upon this victory to get his hands on the levers of power. So the main things they've got their target on are the General Secretary of the Party, Ian McNichol, who is seen as a friend of Tom Watson, as someone who's anti-Corbyn. His name is often mentioned by Corbyn, so someone we need to get rid of. They really want to cut down Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, to size, because he was seen as the man who if not starting the coup against Corbyn, was at least some part of allowing it to happen. Um, And then there's all sorts of other positions on the NEC and what have you. So it's going to get harder and harder to oppose Jeremy. And I'm sure talks of a
1: split will just continue. Absolutely. And you will have seen that there's all this debate about elections to the shadow cabinet. And Tom Watson has been pushing this idea that, It could form some kind of compromise whereby the MPs elect a third of the shadow cabinet or a half or all the shadow cabinet. And what that is all about, it's not quite what it seems. It's about um, places on the National Executive Committee because the shadow cabinet brings with it control over three places on the NEC. and, And for now, the NEC is still reasonably split between moderates and the left. But that's going to change in a couple of weeks where six new members who were elected in August all backed by momentum, the left-wing Corbyn fan club. They're going to be joining the NEC, so it's going to tilt further to the left. And this idea Watson's pushing to shift the NEC is starting to look slightly desperate, but that's the kind of games they're involved with now. Yeah,
0: and look, the long-term ambition of Tom is to restore some form of electoral college, to have the unions and MPs have a different role in the leadership election again, a third, a third, a third. And all of this is about finding the circumstance under which you can change the rules for the future. Jeremy Corbyn may be there for a long time. He's not there forever. The question is, will the Labour Party still be a viable organisation by the time Jeremy Corbyn moves away from it, or will it just be a husk? So far, he's managed to alienate even people on the left, like Lisa Nandy, who might have been thought of as potential successors for Corbyn and Corbynism. There's now a unity on the very left of the party that Corbyn's not the man. It's only the hardcore of MPs who still back him and the membership. This is the challenge, in the end, for the party. An intellectual agenda and an agenda that lines up with what the unions want, what the industrial wing and the movement want.
3: And finally, last quick question, Jim. Normally in the Labour Party, Tom Watson in the past was a big figure not to be taken on lightly. He was the man who's credited for the quiet assassination of Tony Blair and getting him to push him out of office. Yet he looks as if he might possibly be outfoxed somewhat by the Corbynites if they do want to cut him down to size, which sort lot of indications they do. Do you think they'll be successful or would you still put your money on Mr Watson?
1: So Tom Watson's always hated it when he's described as a kind of backroom operator and a sort of henchman, you know, the person that brings down other powerful politicians. But do you remember he brought down Blair, he humiliated Rupert Murdoch. So he does know his way around the corridors of power, but he has himself said, if you thought I had all this power and my efforts over the last few months haven't gone very well, it's proof of the limitations of Tom Watson, the phenomenon. But he does have his own mandate. It's a mandate which isn't as strong as his supporters say it is because it happened when the Labour Party looked very different and Tom Watson was seen very differently by the left. If you were to do another contest today for the deputy leader, I imagine Tom Watson would get absolutely trounced by the momentum candidate, but he does still have that legacy mandate. And you can't initiate a challenge to him as deputy leader unless you get a certain number of MPs. I think it's 50 to sign their signatures against him. So I think he's going to be staying there, looking a little bit isolated around the shadow cabinet for quite a long time.
0: Brave would be the MP that signed the nomination form
3: against Tom Watson. Regular readers will be familiar with our lunch with the FT. In this weekend's paper, there is a twist, though. The FT sat down to have dinner with George Osborne. In his first extended interview since being sacked by Theresa May in July, the former Chancellor spoke to George Parker about the Brexit vote, how he intends to campaign for a soft withdrawal from the EU, as well as his future career plans. So, George, you say you've known Mr. Osborne since the mid-1990s. How would you describe where he currently is at the moment? That I hear that both Mr. Osborne and David Cameron are still in a slight state of shock after all the events of this summer. How did you sense where he's at?
2: Yes, so they're in an extended state of shock, that's for sure. But I will only tell you what I found over the dinner table in Swinton, Manchester, which we went to an Italian restaurant called Puccini's. Not Notting Hill. Not Notting Hill. No, he didn't. I thought that was very significant that he chose a pizza restaurant in a suburb of Manchester rather than a fancy London eatery. And yeah, he's in a state of shock. He didn't hide his disappointment at the result and the fact that his career plans were completely blown out of the water by that vote on June the 23rd. But I will tell you how I found him, which was he seemed pretty relaxed. He's talking about doing a bit of writing and a bit of teaching, recharging his batteries, trying to work out why the globalisation that he's been espousing has failed to connect or indeed deliver for many of the voters who voted to leave the EU. But he's still very much in the game. And I think George Osborne, as you say, I've known him for the best part of 25 years. He is a politician to his fingertips. He's Unlike David Cameron, I think you can imagine walking off and actually having quite a enjoyable afterlife. Osborne still loves the game and wants to, wants to be involved.
3: And just for our listeners who might not be entirely aware of this... George Osborne was very much seen as David Cameron's heir and was expected to make a bid for being Prime Minister at some point. And in your interview with him, he does say people don't believe me when I say this, which they're right not to believe him, that he said that I never actually aspired every day to be in Downing Street. But ever since the Brexit vote, he was sacked from the Cabinet. There was no talk of him running for the Conservative Party leadership this time. But you think he might still run at some point in the future?
2: I think he certainly envisages the possibility that should the cards fall right, that he would still be a player in a future leadership contest. And I asked him and he used an intriguing expression. He took a phrase previously used by Boris Johnson to try to deflect questions about his own prime ministerial ambitions. And he said, if the ball came loose at the back of the scrum, I wouldn't fumble it. In other words, George Osborne was saying, first of all, if the ball came out the back of the scrum, he would grab it. And unlike Boris Johnson, his former rival for the Tory leadership, he wouldn't blow it. This is all very interesting, Robert,
3: because the picture that we get of Osborne from this interview is quite a complex man. He's not the sort of straightforward budget cutter that most of the general public see him as. Why do you think political watchers like us are so interested by Osborne? Well, I think that
4: people who live and work around Westminster and politics like politicians who are like them. If you're really intrigued by politics and obsessed by it, you like the kind of people who are similar. And George Osborne is, as George was saying. I remember him when he was a special advisor and probably in his 20s working for Douglas Hogg during the BSE crisis and then for William Hague. And in a way that's not necessarily attractive to the wider voters. He's mischievous and funny and he's really intrigued by politics. And if you are too, it's very easy to like him at a personal level, whether or not you agree with his politics. So he takes politics seriously and therefore other people take politics seriously like him. He's obviously always been a much more complicated man than any stereotype most politicians are. And it's worth remembering that although he's associated with austerity, that was because of the conditions in which he came to power. And if you remember the two or three years before the Tories got to office in 2010, they actually had quite an expansive and spending agenda, which was part of the liberal and modernizing agenda that the Conservative Party had. They were going to support the health service and education because they had the
3: money to do it. The problem is by the time they got to power, there wasn't any money. This phrase that Mr Osborne used to George about the ball coming loose in the back is very intriguing. But is he being somewhat deluded here? Is he going to be written off by the public or do you think he can make some kind of comeback?
4: There is a phrase, there's no second acts in politics, but it's not true. There are, and there are quite a few of them. David Davis, for example. Well, indeed. The best chance he has, however, is not to worry about this. His best prospects are to get on with being sensible Pushing on the northern powerhouse, being constructive, letting people hark back to the days when he was in charge and he was competent and letting the public and the Conservative Party slowly change its own mind about him. If he starts machinating and trying to work out how he can get it back, the odds are it will never happen. But there are a set of circumstances which one can construct where he could suddenly seem attractive to the Conservative Party and possibly to the country again. But the best way for him to get them is to not worry about getting them.
2: I think that's a really good point. I mean, from the starting point for George Osborne at the moment is not auspicious, is it? If you think about it, he represents the metropolitan London elite, which was rejected, we think, in the Brexit referendum. He was on the wrong side of the Brexit referendum from the point of view of a Eurosceptic Conservative Party. But, you know, he has a track record in government of, as Robert said, competence, competence stewardship of the economy. He's 45 years old. He's 15 years younger than Theresa May. And I agree with Robert. He shouldn't worry about it. He should just get on with things. The northern powerhouse is something he actually really believes in, as well as conveniently uh, a mechanism by which he dispels the idea he's part of the London metropolitan elite. So, you know, he's got a long game plan. And um, the intriguing thing I think about George Osborne, I agree with what Robert was saying earlier, is he is actually quite a strategic thinker and he thinks things through. And the other thing is that actually,
4: although he may not have seen it at the time, Theresa May has done him an enormous favour because he was deeply unpopular at the time she sacked him. And what she has done by the way she sacked him is engender some sympathy for him. People think he was not treated well by her. It was perfectly possible for her to let him resign from cabinet, for let him go with his dignity intact. She chose not to do it. And by creating some sympathy for him, particularly in the Conservative Party,
3: she's made it a bit easier. So you mentioned the EU referendum there, George, and I think Mr Osborne claims that he knew he was going to lose. He said to you, I met too many people who were voting the other way. If you've been in politics for 20 years, you can tell when it's not clicking. Do you think this was apparent at talks? We had this disaster budget or whatever you want to call it, which he said that if we vote for Brexit, I'll have to pass this budget and we're just going to cut all these things, kill kittens and all that sort of thing, of which hasn't come true and lost Osborne a lot of credibility. So do you think that was indicative of his fear of losing or is this just him looking back with rose-tinted glasses?
2: Well I think he genuinely did fear losing in spite of the fact that the private polling that the Remain camp were commissioning kept on saying it was certainly close but things were moving in their direction and indeed on polling day itself the private polling suggested that Remain was going to win by 60-40 He was against
4: the referendum happening He
2: was totally against the referendum happening and advised Cameron strongly against it back in 2012 and it went ahead and he says in the interview that he put his career on the line and as you alluded to there Seb that he basically was taking more and more extreme positions Project Fear if you like to try to to pull things back but I think it's true that he got the sense that there were too many conversations that everybody was having actually which suggested it was going the other way but the polling numbers bizarrely seem to give them some false comfort.
3: Going back to the point about Theresa May, Robert, because the relations between those two, I think, are always going to be a matter of intrigue, that Osborne says to George, I voted for her and I support her, so I obviously want her to do well. Um, It's hard to think that she would have been his first choice as Prime Minister, and there's this very brutal way that he was being sacked. Do you think that whatever his vision is, he's going to cause trouble, whether he should or not?
4: I think it's believable that she was his first choice once the choices were put in front of him. There weren't that many other that looked deeply attractive at that point. Certainly not Andrea um, so. Do I think he's going to cause trouble? I think he will be very, very strategic about this. I think he will not look to cause trouble. I think he will, if there is something that he feels she's doing that is viscerally wrong. For example, he always strongly opposed identity cards. If she went down that kind of path again, I think he might oppose it. But I think he would try to do it in a relatively non-confrontational way because certainly at the moment there's no percentage in this for him down the line if she's terribly in trouble maybe he could be a bit overt but when he does put his head above the parapet and oppose something he will try to do it in as depersonalised a way as possible
3: the two names that Osborne is known about Westminster George one is the octopus chancellor and the other one is the submarine chancellor now the octopus because he's got his people and his tentacles everywhere now a lot of those people are no longer in power but they're still around and still in an influential place people like Matt Hancock for example who is I think the digital economy or digital culture minister and then the submarine chancellor is that he pops up makes strategic interventions and then disappears and dives away again so you can see a way about how he will use his formidable network and political skills to carefully attack the main government in the way that Robert
2: suggested Yeah well some people have talked about him being the leader of the Maastricht rebels in reverse which I think is probably quite a nice way of putting it because George Osborne's position throughout this what would be two years of brutal political influence. Fighting and negotiations between London and Brussels. If George Osborne senses that the final settlement will be against the interests of business and against the interests of free trade and the liberal interests that he says he represents, then I think he'll speak out. And I think that will be how he positions himself as the pro-business, pro-trade, And despite the fact that the Tory party is a Eurosceptic party, it also does have the interests of business at heart. And I think if he can position himself as someone who's prepared to speak out for business and the interests of the City of London and so on, he certainly won't be short of um, backing and financial backing should he ever wish to go back into the front line of politics. The only thing I say about the Osborne network is that he had a network for as long as it looked like he might be about to become the next Prime Minister. The moment that power is stripped away from people, it's amazing how quickly their networks disappear. But I still think there is a certain amount of personal loyalty owed to George Osborne by a load of people who still sit around the Cabinet table. I'm thinking, for example, of Sajid Javid and Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary.
4: The other thing I think one has to bear in mind is that political parties don't exist in a vacuum. And so the wider political landscape determines how people behave and what they can get away with. And the attraction of what he talks of as a liberal mainstream majority, I'm not convinced Like there's a mainstream majority, whether it's liberal, seems to me open to debate and how you define it. But the modernised, socially liberal agenda that he believed in, it's not as necessary for the Conservatives to be as strong as that, as long as the Labour Party doesn't look viable. The point is they can revert to more of a comfort zone, which is less socially liberal, at which a lot of them would want to occupy anyway. The whole appeal of the modernising compassionate Conservatives was that they were fighting a Labour government that had taken that land. If you're fighting a Labour opposition that doesn't look close to power, the need to go and occupy that territory
3: is less extreme. That's very interesting, this liberal mainstream majority talks of, George, because after the 2015 general election, it was said that in his first budget, where he bowled a lot of Ed Miliband's ideas, ironically, he was building a big tent centre leftwards and parking his tanks on Labour's lawn, etc, etc. Theresa May doesn't seem to be doing that. I don't want to say she isn't, because it's still very early days, but she certainly seems to be going in a different direction. I suppose the big question is, as Robert said... Where is Labour going to be? Where's the government going to be? And will George Osborne be able to effectively do that? Because he's going to sort of stand up and represent that strain of conservatism in the same way Ken Clark has stood up and represented his strain of conservatism and John Redwood has, but... It doesn't necessarily actually change anything.
2: Yes, I think that's what we're saying, whether there actually is a liberal mainstream majority in this country is open to debate. The party which calls itself the Liberal Party, the Liberal Democrats was annihilated at the general election and the Liberal mainstream were also routed in the Brexit referendum. So It's going to take a bit of rebuilding. And actually, George Osborne in the interview says he needs to recharge his batteries and find a way of making that narrative connect with ordinary people. Theresa May's stance is fascinating. I was speaking to a Tory MP yesterday who said she's drifting rightwards. We're going back to our comfort zone, grammar schools being the example that this MP chose, which is interesting because it's certainly true that grammar schools are an obsession of the Tory right. And starts to sound a little bit like going back to the 50s and the 60s. On the other hand, Theresa May, I think one of the big themes of the Tory conference would be cracking down on corporate irresponsibility, talking about helping people who are just getting by, rather the opposite. As Robert was saying, is going into the centre ground that Labour used to and I think
4: the other point is that although we've all been rather drawn to the grammar school's proposals, there's an awful lot of a gap between the rhetoric of this and what may be the reality. And it could be that Theresa May is rather good at sending a signal to that part of England is England really that is harking backwards and the reality of this when it's delivered is much more small and much less dramatic than we might imagine so that she sent a signal people feel reassured but when you look at the reality five, ten years down the line
3: it isn't that amazing and that's it for this week's episode thank you very much to all my guests for joining we'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics thank you for listening If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com podcasts. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.